All right, man. Uh, first thing first, can you like introduce yourself for the audience? Yes, absolutely. So my name's Mohammed. Um, I'm a uh, licensed physical therapist, uh, doctor of physical therapy, uh, graduated from the University of Mary Hardin Baylor. Um, I did my undergrad at University of Texas at Arlington. And after physical therapy school, um, I went and um, sought after what I thought was my dream job in the outpatient setting. Um, I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So um, regardless of how big Dallas is, you'd be really surprised as how little uh, there are for true sports physical therapy clinics. You know, you see a lot of places out there that say sports physical therapy clinics, but it's, you know, you walk in and it's a, you know, five by five square foot building with small weights. But um, this place that I went after um, was one of very few at the time. And, uh, you know, sought after what I thought was my dream job about six months in, realized that it just, I, I wanted a little bit more and it was nothing against the job itself. It was just more so of like the direction that I was headed. And I always told myself that I was going to work in professional sports. So about six months in, I kind of decided, you know what, that's probably not, this is probably not where I want to be for a long time. So what do I need to do? Um, and I had a podcast myself, or at least I had one and I haven't really been active and it's been, life's been crazy, but um, uh, it was called the Halo Effect podcast. And I had a lot of guests on there that um, is initially just kind of informed me, you know, you've got two routes and I'll just kind of summarize it here for the audience, but you've got your, um, you know, residency route, you can go physical therapy residency, which um, doesn't completely guarantee you a position in, in professional sports, um, but there may be a good chance, right? Um, you know, cons are you're going to take a pay cut. Um, you know, you're going to have to move somewhere to get a good residency. You have to get accepted, obviously, first and foremost. You know, so there's a lot of, you know, downside, downsides to that. But there's a lot of upsides. You become a much better physical therapist. You become much more knowledgeable in your field. Um, you'll You'll get a little bit more letters after your name with the SCS. Then you've got the athletic training route, which I was not familiar with at all. And I was like, okay, well, this seems a little cool. Like I, um, I want to learn about this a little bit. So what, what, what is athletic training? I didn't even know what athletic training was until after I graduated physical therapy school, which just kind of lets you know, like where I was. Right. And, um, just kind of bring more people onto the podcast that had these dual credentials. They were PTs and they were ATs just listening to their stories. I was like, okay, well maybe this seems like the route to go. Um, so after a long conversation with my wife, because the way he explained it was the people that were on my podcast, the way he explained it was um, residency is a maybe athletic training is, is not a for sure, but pretty, pretty damn close. Like you're going to see the light at the end of the tunnel if you go the athletic training route. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, let me look into it. You know, um, looked into some local areas, talked to some, uh, talked to a professor, um, at the UTA uh, school that I go to right now. So I'm, I'm back at UTA for my master's now. Um, and uh, yeah, it just kind of turned out to be where I, I did this kind of full, like, I don't want to say backwards, but you know, not the traditional route where people will normally go their athletic training school, and then they'll go to physical therapy school. And then they'll, they'll walk out um, at a young age with both of them. Whereas me, I finished worked for a year, and then went back to school to attain my master's. Um, so anyways, um, that's kind of what led me to where I am now. So I ended up um, leaving that job and now I'm in school and I do a lot of um, things on the side currently with um, um, some athletes in the local area. And then I work 
Um, I'm kind of like a Swiss Army knife right now. I do I do pediatric home health as well. And then um, even right now, just to kind of help me get by school, I'm doing some work in the hospital for inpatients. So it's getting a lot of a lot of things right now. But anyways, that's all just to say that's a little bit a little bit of a snippet of who I am and my background and what led me to where I am right now. Cool, cool. So uh, I know you were the summer intern from Broncos, right? How Correct. is that? How how did that go for you? Oh man, it was awesome. Like that was a dream come true for me. I remember, so like I, uh, I mean, like I said, we had a talk, we had a conversation with my wife, and I was like, you know, I'm gonna have to quit. I'm gonna have to, you know, do some side jobs. We're not gonna make as much money, and you know, she's a teacher. She's not making a lot of money either. And so I remember just kind of sitting there, like, hey, like this is gonna be a big risk. Is this gonna be okay for you? And she was super supportive. I'm I'm very blessed to have a a wife. She was at my at the time uh, we were engaged, but now she's my wife and very lucky to call her my wife and how much she's been able to support me through um, all of my dreams. So she completely supported my dream of going after the NFL. So after I got into uh, school, um, I applied for NFL internships and um, was thankfully accepted while I was, I was working at SMU as an intern um, or like for clinical rotations. And I got a call from the Broncos saying like, Hey, we want to, we want to bring you on. And I just remember like, I was freaking out. Like I, I ran out the like training room and I called my wife and I was like, the Broncos want to bring me on. And I was freaking out. And I was like, this is going to be like, this is everything that I, that I wanted, everything that I dreamed for, because, you know, I sacrificed so much just to even get that opportunity. So I was just so grateful for them. I'm grateful for the Broncos organization. I'm grateful for my wife and everything, but they yeah, the experience. I mean, it was great. It was a lot of hard work. Um, I was working like 120 hour weeks. If that, if that's even like comprehensible to some people, cause <laughs> some people work 40 hours and they go home and they're like, damn, I'm tired. You know, no, I was working like crazy hour weeks. It's day. It's, it's a, it's a full-time job. It truly is a full-time job. Like there's no, there's no, I mean, granted it wasn't a staff position, right? It was an internship, but I mean, I was anywhere from, you know, assisting in the training room. It's it's a lot of, it's a lot of making yourself, it's a lot of showing, it's not showing your skills so much in the summer athletic internship. You're not really demonstrating any like rehab skills because right now all they want to know is how hard of a worker are you? And so, I mean, quite frankly, it's just busting your ass. Like you just, you just grind day in and day out. And, um, if you're not, it, it'll quickly weed you out. If you're not really in it for things that you enjoy, it'll quickly, uh, it'll quickly uh, let you know, like, hey, this isn't for you. Uh, you said you're with Louisville right now, right? I don't know if you're with basketball or with football. I'm in basketball. I'm with basketball. basketball. Okay, okay, okay. So it's a little, it's a little bit more like calm, right? Yeah, but like, but you've probably seen football before. Yeah, yeah. And it's insane, right? So it's it's like that, but on a whole nother level. I mean, just to kind of give people a snippet. We go in at 5.30 in the morning. We set up the f- the field. So that involves like setting up like water tanks and ice um, ice buckets and ice towels and uh, making sure they're set. And there's two football fields side by side at Broncos. And that whole process took about on a good day, an hour and a half, like a very good day, hour and a half. Um, on a bad day, two and a half hours to set it up. So, and that's with three or four people. 
three people, sorry. Um, you would do that. You come back in, try to be in before eight, eight thirty ish. You can have your breakfast, be quick, go right into the training room, assist with rehab plans. So you're just kind of walking the athletes through their rehab protocols. Um, then you're prepping for practice. You got in practice. Practice is typically two hours long. You come back in after a long, sunny, hot day in practice. Come back in. Then you get the training room stocked up. Make sure the taping tables are stocked. Make sure everything is set up. Making sure the inventory is good. Doing all your little admin stuff in between. And then now it's somewhere between two or three-ish o'clock. You're back in, still helping with rehab, keeping the tables clean. So you can see like in everything that I'm telling you, I haven't really told you anything skill-wise, right? Like we're not doing anything that requires a lot of skill. It's more so just, it's just work, work, work. And they want to see like, does this person respond well to um, uh, criticism? Do they respond well to this? And, you know, granted, it wasn't just like a, a slave work, like mill, right? I'm, I'm making it sound bad, but I'm saying like, you know, every now and then they would, they would pull us aside and they would have some teaching moments with us. There was a, a really... Um, a lot of really great people on the staff. They're all great. Um, one in particular was Matt. He was a director of rehab and he would pull us aside and just like randomly ask us questions to kind of keep our, our brains, you know, um, engaged and things like that. Um, yeah, no, it was great. I, uh, travel was fun. You know, you get to travel with the team. They have like a big private jet with amazing amenities but even traveling is hectic. I mean, you got to make sure all the stuff is on board and you got to make sure that you're doing your job there and you don't have time to go out and hang out. Like it's wake up in the, get you have a curfew at 10, get up in the morning, set up everything, go to the uh, uh, visiting team or I'm sorry, home field team and set up your training room there. So it's like, it's insane. I, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to explain everything that happens in an in internship in just one talk. But I mean, it was a great, it was a great opportunity. I got you. I got you. I can literally feel the energy you have right now. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very animated. <laughs> cool. Cool. So uh, I'm going to jump into the question we probably discussed a little before. And you recently have, not, rec not recently, you have a post on Achilles tendon, right? Yes. So um, it's about like 2000. 2023 about the numbers of like Achilles tendon. I like that post. Can you like uh walk through us? Yeah. So um essentially what kind of led me to that post was um you know we we I started noticing a little bit of a trend and not only me but a lot of other people too like you as you've probably seen online but Achilles tendon ruptures have been quite significantly predominant this season specifically. And it's just kind of left people wondering, like, what exactly is happening here? What, why, why is this occurring? What could have changed? You know, what are we doing wrong? What's, what's happening, right? And I want to preface this by saying, Achilles ruptures and, and like most other injuries, are very, are very multifactorial. You know, it's very hard to put a single blame on an injury, as you already know. So, um, I'll preface that by saying that. Um, however. Um, I think that a lot of people right now online, and this is just my opinion, right? A lot of people online are really trying to make turf the villain, right? They're trying to make artificial turf this big bad villain of why Achilles tendons are occurring right now. 
and why um why we're having so many ruptures. I mean, you'll see it in the comments of a, of a player, an ESPN reports a player gets injured and was like, get rid of the turf, get rid of the turf, get rid of the turf. And it's like, there's a lot more to the pie that we need to consider before you just go after something that you don't even know if it's hundred percent causing the issue. Right. That's what led me down that road. So I was like, you know, this is going to be a small little study. Like, I mean, I call it study. It's not a study, but you know, like I pulled, I took all the numbers from ESPN found out how many people were injured. Um, I have some contacts in the NFL um, that, you know, can kind of like verify what I was putting out. So some like some, for example, there was an athlete that got injured um, in a practice setting. And I didn't know if he was at his home field or if he was at his practice field. Um, and the home field is grass, practice fields, turf. And that's important for me to know when I'm putting my data so I can, I have the ability to be able to like reach out to these guys like, Hey, I know that you work with this player. Was this, did this happen on this or this? If you don't mind me asking. And they were gracious enough to give me that information. Anyways, you know, like putting in that data um, and breaking it down, I just started noticing a trend and the trend was, and again, very small sample size. I'm not saying this is, I want to say this again, because people just take everything for, for face value. It's a very small sample size. It's not hundred percent. But there has to be something here. That's just how I look at it. And what I found was out of all the injuries that occurred, okay, there was a 50%, 50% of injuries. And I need to like pull this up just to make sure that I'm saying this right too, because I'm gonna I want to double check before I before I start saying it out. So like what I'm looking at right now, for example, 14 Achilles injuries recorded were recorded. And out of all of the Achilles injuries, seven of them were on turf and some of them were on grass. Right. So that lets me know numbers wise out of 15 or 14 people. Why are we blaming turf? It's a 50 50 shot right now. So half of them are on the turf or half of them grass. Like, okay. So what's the difference? So I started inputting data like, okay, was it a game setting? Was it a practice setting? Because that stuff is important too. Cause then you, you're not, now you're talking about how much effort these guys are putting in, how much force development is occurring how much, um, you know, all that, all the, these factors that people don't consider and that can't necessarily be researched, but we know is important, right? So looking at that, you know, you start to notice that trend where injuries on turf during game days, I'm sorry, on games, like if it was a game situation, 71% of those injuries happened. So if it was a game situation, you were 71% more likely to injure it on for the, um, for the injuries on turf for the injuries on turf and practice out of, out of those seven, only two of those were during practice situations. Okay. So that's not, again, this isn't me saying that practice situations, there's no way you should have an Achilles tear. It's going to happen, but you can't 1000% blame the turf, right? Now you compare this to the game situation. I'm sorry, to the grass. Okay. So now we look at grass out of all the, seven grass i'm sorry the 14 grass injuries i'm sorry yeah the seven grass injuries five of those occurred during a game situation and two of those also occurred during a turf i mean sorry during a practice situation mirror i mean it's a mirror effect right here literally a 50 50 of injuries that happened and injuries that happened here so that's where i started going down this rabbit hole of i'm just going to put the information out but I'm going to put my opinion. And my opinion is, is that turf 
may or may not be important, but 1,000%, okay, okay, 90%, 90%, I'm 90% sure that the intensity in which these injuries happen are much more important than the turf, right? So now how do we address that? How do we address game situational intensity? Okay, you can't force an athlete to put game situational intensity into practice. You can't. So how do we address it? I started looking more into things that happened. Um, you know, if it was, uh, this is something that I want to do into the data too, but I, I wasn't able to input it here. But when did these injuries that occurred during practice, because now you break it down even further, the two injuries that occurred during practice were those practices after in training camp where load is very, very, very high. Or was it injuries in practice during the regular season where load is much, much, much lower? Because in training camp, you're fighting for your job and you're fighting for a, a spot on the team. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to feed your family. So they're busting their ass in training camp, right? Then you have the people who are working um, in the regular season in the practice. They already have their jobs. You know, not to say that they're not busting their ass. They are. But my point is, is that they're not putting in that same exact maximal power force development effort that they were in training camp trying to beat the next guy out. So, again, it just keeps floating into that 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 theory that I have, which is, is it the intensity or is it the um, turf? Which I'm willing to bet a lot that it's not the turf, you know, because like I just said, even in turf situations, I'm willing to bet that those turf situations that they did injure the two and each one in grass, two in grass and two in practice. I'm willing to bet those were in training camp or at least three of those were out of the four. You know what I'm saying? So that's just kind of where I stand. And um, I think that a lot of people just are missing the very significant piece of the pie, which is, again, how do we address that? And kind of going back, I know I lost track, but what are we doing in the offseason to make sure that we're avoiding these issues later on? So that when they make their way up and ramp up, because what do we know about Achilles injury or not Achilles tendon injuries in general is that if you don't apply proper load and proper load progression, either you're going to get tendonitis, tendinopathy, or you're going to have a tear, right? So what are we doing in the off season? What are these athletes now doing in the off season to progress their way forward? Back in nine, I put this in there as well, but back in 1997 to 2002, I gave this range, right? Very random range. A lot of people ask me like, why these, why this range? I brought this range up because it was a lot, it was, um, it was a specific highlight back in the day because it was, it was much further away from where we are now. So if we're talking 1997 to 2023, I thought that was a good distance away from being able to say 1997 was diff way different football than it was in 2023, way different football. I mean, you don't need to be a, a scientist to even know that, right? So 1997, 2002 was the range I decided to go with. In those, in that two, in those two year timestamps, 31 Achilles injuries occurred. This year alone, and I haven't double checked and I haven't updated my numbers since I posted this, but this year alone, we have somewhere between 14 to 16 Achilles injuries, right? And that's in just one season. And where I just gave you a five, a five-year range. So that's a big difference, right? So anyways, that's, that's kind of where, you know, it's like, okay, what's, what's changed between then and now that athletes are not well prepared, at least according to my theory, are not well prepared leading up into the off season and leading up into those loads. And I think that 
what we now are focusing on as physical therapists, unfortunately, and as um, rehab professionals and um, chiropractors and massage therapists and all these other professions that are a part of this big holistic factor. I think where a lot of, not a lot, but I think where some are dropping the ball is that, you know, we're not um, loading our athletes properly. And we're much more interested in giving them passive modality treatments. And we're much more interested in giving them cupping and needling and these things. And, you know, you know, granted, these people have to put food on their tables too, like the providers. And they know that this kind of stuff, you know, athletes enjoy and they, and they, they feel, they feel good when they do it. And that's important too, by the way. But I think it's our jobs to really build that rapport with the athlete, do what they do, what they ask, build that rapport with the athlete, but then start to engage with them and, and let them know and inform them. This is why you need to do X, Y, and Z. This is why we need to bring you into a gym and load you. This is why it doesn't have to be me. It can be someone else, but I need, I need you to be loaded. I need you to take on some stress because these guys only train strength, strength wise, like two to three times a week in the regular season off season, they're getting massages and dry needling and stretching, and they're doing all these other things, but how much strength training are they actually doing? Right. And I'm willing to bet that the people who are really, really, really dedicated in the strength training aspect and loading aspect are the ones that aren't getting those tears later on. Again, not a hundred percent, but I'm willing to bet that a large number of those are contributed to the ones who are doing what they're supposed to do in the off season. But yeah, that's just kind of what led me down that post. Good, good. So, because like I think it's a few months ago, uh, we have like uh, Coach Fu on our campus, and we were discussing about why is there so many like Achilles tendon tear this year. And it was like, yeah, probably not loading them properly. I'm not yeah. gonna say this hundred percent what he said, but like this is yeah what we're discussing. So yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you so uh besides like i know there's gonna be a lot of reason tons of like reason why a cleese tendon tear but uh for especially for nfl do you think that like landing mechanics all those stuff also influence not just like turf <laughs> grass yeah are you talking about what do you mean by landing mechanics exactly like um the pos the position the position of foot strikes oh yeah yeah like changing direction action yeah okay yeah so um i mean yeah i mean i think that it's definitely a piece of the pie like if i'm looking at everything as a whole um and i'm separating and i've told people this online too like i think turf plays a role do i, I don't think it plays a anywhere near a significant role as load so when it comes to everything if there's anything that's going to be pulled from this podcast from from what Muhammad knows and what Muhammad says is that Muhammad believes that loading principles come first and foremost, always. That's just how I'm always, and that's just always going to be my stance. Um, however, yes, to answer your question, I do think that foot mechanics, position biomechanics are significantly important. Now, I will say that in Achilles tears, I don't think they're as, I don't think that piece of the pie is as wide for foot mechanics and Achilles tears, then they would be in someone like an ACL or MCL tear, right? 
because you're talking about two different things now. You're talking about ligaments that are in jo- that their jobs are to connect bone to bone and there's to stabilize the joint. And then you're talking about a tendon where that has myofascial components that kind of dive into the muscle. So a lot of other things that play into the tendon strength. So um, maybe this much for Achilles tendon tears for change of direction, maybe like that much for, for something like an ACL MCL, if I were to put it visually for like for us. So yeah, that's how I would, I would definitely, I would definitely agree and say that when it comes to ACL and MCLs, that the piece of the pie is much larger. Great. Great. That leads me to the next question about like with football, there's like tons of like deceleration, change of direction. So like we mentioned how they land, how their foot strikes the ground gonna, gonna affect like MCL, ACL. So this is going to be a big question, but like when we co when probably like me, I'm a performance coach. I'm, I'm a strength coach. When I coach my athlete, if I want to coach whatever it is, football, basketball, but when I'm seeing a change of direction movement, no matter shuffle crossover, what exactly should we be looking at it? Uh, how wide should they be landing? Is mm-hmm. it shorter width? Is it like uh hip width? Uh, does like hit knee internal rotation matters? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the way the way I look at it is that when you're looking at change of direction movements, um, like for example, if I were to be looking at change of direction and it's something that I'm looking at biomechanically from an injury perspective and injury rehab perspective, um, you have to kind of break it down into a lot of categories, right? And so I think that, um, and here I'm going to, actually going to widen out this screen so I can see you better. Um, I think that you have to look at a lot of categories here. So um, you have to consider, you know, one, what is the angle of change of direction that you're doing, right? Are you doing a 45 degree angle? Are you doing a 90 degree angle? Are you doing a 180 degree angle? You know, these are all, I guess that would be from easier to harder, right? Hardest. Um, And that would put 180 being the most stressed on the knee joint. Yep, that's something to consider. Um, then you have to look at things like, again, this is multifactorial. Are you looking at planned movements? Or are you looking at unplanned movements? Because as we know, if it's planned, you're going to have much more time to actually approach the, um, you know, control your approach velocity and, uh, uh, and, and, and be able to decelerate adequately because you know where you're going, right? And then I think also uh, what would be important is that, as well as being able to control your eccentric forces. So these are things that you want to look at from an injury rehab perspective um, as to, you know, what exactly it is you're looking for when you're looking at change of direction. So to answer your question, what I would look for is if I'm assessing like a 180. So let's, let's say we have two cones separated, right? And we've got an athlete that's going to, and I'm, I want to assess him. I want to do a right to left change of direction, 180 degrees. And I want to see how well he's able to make those turns. What I'm looking for is um, his approach velocity. How confident is he in approaching this cone? Um, And then when he gets there, how many steps does it take for him to decelerate? Is he taking extra steps to decelerate or is he, you know, is he fidgeting? What What is he doing when he gets there? Okay, that's one. Then we get here and are they controlling? Are they lowering their center of mass? 
are they keeping their center of mass within their base of support adequately? So when they get to that point, are they being, are they able to stay low to the ground and confidently approach, right? Then the last thing I'm looking for, or I guess a couple more things is their lateral trunk flexion. So if they are, they're approaching this cone and they're significantly laterally flexed, that creates a larger gra um, uh, ground reaction force, which then we know increases the uh, in, uh, knee injury uh, joint um, risk profile. Another thing is how wide their stance is. If it's a significantly large or wide step, they approach that cone and they're taking a really, really big step because they don't want to get there. That's going to create a larger internal rotation from the ground reaction force, creating a lot, a lot more force there, but internal rotation momentum, which as we know, internal rotation can increase the risk of putting strain on the ACL. So we have to just assume that, yes, that would cause or at least lead to a cause of ACL tears. So those are the things that I'm looking for biomechanically. And then the last thing I'm looking for is, are they able to confidently and aggressively push off that foot and change that direction, right? So you have to look at two things. Like, what are you looking for as a physical therapist? Are you looking at how well mechanically they're handling the situation or like how fast they can do it? Or are you looking at their mechanics when they're doing these certain things? And I think what's for us, the most important thing is looking at their mechanics. Okay. So I don't performance that can come later, but if we get the foundations, boom, send them off the strength and conditioning, or we can do whatever we want, let them do their job. Right. So I, I'm going to need you to like, uh, repeat the last part of the question. Cause like, I mean, movement is the best if the athlete can move like better they're going to perform better and Correct. decrease the injury risk so yeah i constantly have i'm not going to say constantly have debate but like i personally just think moving are better and the, is more fundamental for athlete we need to adjust moving more than just our output than just like velocity correct correct 100 because if you they I mean, there's even research and I can I can even send you three articles right now. But there's research out there that say if you don't have a controlled approach velocity when you're going to your target, you're more likely to increase your injury risk and controlled approach velocity is like, OK, this guy's going super fucking fast. But when he gets there, his step is wide, his his angles are off, his he's trunk leaning to the left too far away from his plantar foot. He's not turning adequately. He's not pivoting off the foot well the dude's going to injure himself because now what you've got is a shit ton of speed that's balancing on one pencil. It's like trying to put a house on a pencil. Like it's not going to, it's not going to stand, right? It's, that's the best way I can explain it. So I, 1000%, I agree. I think that if you don't have the foundations, you're not going to get better and you're not going to be able to improve your speed. Maybe you'll still be able to compensate, but that, that the house is going to fall eventually on the pencil. Yeah. It's going to fall. Yeah, so, so I work with basketball, not like football. Football at crazy speed, crazy change of direction. Right. And we got, we got, we got an athlete that man, that guy's crazy power output. He can yeah. lift the heaviest concentrically. He can lift the heaviest. Yeah, the number just not a problem. But when you see the move on the court, it just man, that guy can't decelerate just look like shit so i'm like, yeah okay yeah okay what we're gonna do we're not gonna lift heavy anymore we're gonna try 
to find out where is there a movement issue? Do you have like a restriction on range of motion? Is there like uh is that we need to activate certain muscle or we need to like stabilize your uh we need to like help you stabilize and have like good pelvic oscillation. Yeah. And then that that's what we do. We didn't do we didn't like lift. We didn't even do like change of direction. So nothing. We just do that and just change. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that that's perfect. That's how you should be approaching your athletes. If you're if you're if you're focused so much on how much strength that they're able to put out, um, when you're what again, this is in terms of uh change of direction, but you know, if you're only focused on your strength, I mean, yeah, they'll get faster, but eventually you're you're doing them a disservice because you're putting them at an increased uh, injury risk and you were hired to do the opposite so uh strength coaches are are really good at are getting people strong and i think this is also another thing but i won't go down that rabbit hole is that we have to be able to work together as a team and be able to optimize the athlete's care yes i can i'm cscs certified that doesn't mean that i'm the best person on the team qualified to get this guy going right that's not my that's not my expertise does it help me as a physical therapist yes but i don't think it's my expertise right so um you know you have to be able to pull in people who are able to kind of help in your job specifically as a physical therapist and your job as uh, as the anatomical and musculoskeletal expert is to assess biomechanical deficiencies assess all these things that may be playing into the foundational deficits and then finally from there utilizing the people around you to improve those deficits so yeah true because i feel like uh sometimes there's going to be a gap between strength coaches between athletic trainer and between like uh physical therapist right and you need to have like good commun communication between these three then the athlete's gonna be fine yeah 100 100 and, and you could, good communication between the whole team you know like dietitians good communication with your chiropractor good communication with um um the the fucking equipment staff like everyone like i think that that everybody needs to be on the same page in order in some way shape or form in order to get the athlete optimized well and unfortunately that's just not the case in most sports teams these days and i think that the ones that operate really well you can tell because you're able to see how everyone just kind of works together well you know so Cool. I'm gonna dive deeper into the change of direction with yeah. like uh ACL, MCL. Mm -hmm. So I know you already mentioned that the if we're gonna go into that cone, the speeds matter and you're gonna look in like how much steps they're gonna decelerate. I know it's kind of like hard to answer, but with that, like if we're gonna talk about like how many how many steps you gonna go before that's like that cone? How many steps you need to decelerate before the last step? Um, what exactly are you looking to? Is it like uh, how is their body gonna like uh the the upper body angle gonna change? How is their like shin angle gonna change? I think that as far as the knee joint goes, I think that there needs to be more knee flexion. So as you're approaching your cone, in my example that I brought up earlier, as you're approaching that cone, you want greater knee flexion because with greater knee flexion means you're, you're, you're able to adequately decelerate your approach velocity as you're, you know, approaching that cone. And as you're able to do that, then you're, you're demonstrating good 
deceleration technique. You're demonstrating good eccentric force. So I think an increase um, in knee flexion is a really big thing that I look for when I'm assessing a change of direction between an athlete going from cone A to cone B. Um, as far as hip and trunk angles, again, I don't know specific exact numbers, but what I would look for, if I'm looking at it from a mechanical, cause I could, I can sit here and say 45 degrees and two degrees in the hip and two, you know, I can say all this, all this fucking numbers and just spit them out. Right. But at the end of the day, the biggest thing is that you want to know is that when you're going to that cone, you want them lower, right? You, you need their base of support lower and, and, and you need them to have a good balance of trunk stability as they're approaching that cone. Otherwise they're not able to control where they're going. And what happens is they'll end up taking that larger step and that larger step will increase the ground reaction force. Ground reaction force will increase the in internal rotation force in the knee, ACL injury risk, right? So that's, that's kind of how I approach it. So as you're approaching that cone to answer your question, lower center of mass and increased knee flexion angles, biggest two things. Cool. So I, one thing I noticed is like there's some discussion about knee flexion angle and hip hinge, hip hinge. Okay. So hip flexion angle, sorry. So uh, with knee flexion and hips, hip flexion, yeah. Uh, is it occurs at the same time or? I think that depends on the type of change of direction that you're doing. Think that if you're approaching it, if you're approaching a 180 degree, that looks different than somebody who's doing a 45 degree angle change, because again, 45 degrees is much easier. So you're not able, you're not having to bend your knee as much. So you may use a little bit more of the hip and then vice versa in the, um, in the 180. Right. So I think it just depends on the change of direction, like which, which, what skill you're trying to do or which maneuver you're trying to perform. Um, but I think from a biomechanical perspective, I think, yes, I think they should occur at the same time because what then that, that, what that then does is it equally brings you down to that center of mass, that lower center of mass, enabling you to be able to push off of that lateral foot and plant off more aggressively. Cool. So uh, next thing I want to discuss, and you also brought up, is like the trunk lateral flexion. Flexion. Yep. Yeah. So interesting enough is like we were discussing about football, ACL change of direction, and when you see that there's like ACL tear or like a crease tendon tear in basketball, it also happened with trunk flexion, lateral flexion. Sorry. Mm -hmm. So, um. In order to like um, help or like improve trunk lateral flexion, what would you do? So there's modifications out there, and there's a lot of research that um, that supports that the way that you really want to go about it is you want to kind of strategize modifications of their deceleration or of their approach velocities and change of direction. So. I think the biggest thing is just doing modifications in the way that they change, right? There's little drills that you can start doing to improve that. So first and foremost, I'd probably end up recording what they're doing wrong. I'd visually show them, hey, this is what, like if I was doing right to left and then left to right, you did really great off of the right. So people are able to change direction really good on the right. And then they're really shitty at doing it on the left, right? So I would show them like, this is how you look. You took, you know, X amount of steps when you went to the right to decelerate. Great. You did. 10 more steps going to the left, bad, right? So 
start showing them these little deficiencies, start targeting. Then you have to ask yourself, okay, why are they doing it? Is it, is it a, um, is it a range of motion deficit? Is a, is it a strength deficit? Is it a competence issue? Have they not done it enough? Is that not their dominant side? There's a lot of things that you want to consider. And then from there, you kind of, in knowing your athlete are able to kind of build that knowledge base and then kind of hone in on exactly what it is that you need to improve for that. So for example, if I've got somebody who's increased in lateral trunk flexion as they're approaching their their cone, right? I know, for example, that they're not competent in loading that knee, right? Or at least the first thing is going to tell me that they're not competent in loading that knee because otherwise they would have put all their weight on that knee, sit, lowered their center of mass, and then pushed off of it, right? But they're not confident in putting their weight on that knee. Therefore, they didn't do it and, and pulled away, right? They think that they're protecting themselves, but what they're really doing is increasing their injury risk. So we test them. Is strength equal on both legs? And that can happen through any which ways. It can be, you know, you know, you can test the quad to hamstring ratio. You can test them eccentrically. Are they able to decelerate or, or eccentrically control weight on the right leg, single leg versus a left leg? Compare those two numbers and then address that come back to it and see, okay, now can they do it, right? Is it a biomechanical deficiency? And if it is, what's exactly happening? And so now what I can do is put them in that exact same position, tell, show them what they're doing wrong, have them go through it again. And if they fix it, good, we're good, right? So there's a lot of different ways you can go about it. But I think ultimately it just depends on the athlete because you have to first figure out what's happening that can that's leading to that lateral trunk flexion and then going down your little checklist and making sure that you're targeting everything to make sure that they're avoiding that in the future, right? So I think that's the biggest thing. Nice. Last question about change, change of direction. I know you also mentioned like uh, the base of sport, how I should this, uh, this, the stance. So I know things go together, not just one like one's gonna like dictate all but can you like explain a little like um if it's a perfect deceleration a perfect change of direction what should it be look like related to like center mass and and probably a pretty lousy one what is it what what's what it's gonna look like so I think it's really just a lot of reiterating the things that I've explained. So kind of like, like a perfect, I mean, it's hard to say what a perfect one would look like, because again, we have to know exactly examples, but in a, in a perfect world, a good deceleration is somebody who has, um, who is approaching their, who has a great approach velocity, very high speed, confident, able to approach velocity, taking less steps when they're approaching their cone to decelerate, um, increase knee flexion angle and able to decelerate their force, lower center of mass, which means they're and, and able to and and able to balance their center of mass between the base of support. So if they're in this position where they're here, and um, I'm not sure if this is going to be recording or if this is going to be for so the people who are actually watching this video. If I'm here and I'm in this position and I'm going to make my turn in this direction, then I need to be able to make sure that my center of mass is in within a good um a uh, base of support right now so even though i'm putting more of my weight on this right leg not on my left 
I'm pushing my body weight and able to make sure that I'm keeping, you can't see my knees right now because I don't have a vacant root, but I'm able to keep my body weight here in this, in this, um, in this center of mass to where I'm balanced and I'm confident. Like if you come over here right now and you were to push me, I'm not going anywhere because I'm, I'm in a good base of support, right? It's almost like a boxing principle. Like when you get people into their boxing stances and they're getting into their positions, right? They teach you that when your foot and you're not in a good base of support in your position, that you're narrow, you're able, you get knocked over faster, right? But if you kind of widen out your steps and you're able to control these foot patterns, then you should be able to hold this position. Somebody comes and pushes you, you're not able to move, right? So that's what I mean if you're putting it into like a visual perspective. Um, so I think that's important. And then um, in a perfect world, if we were to increasing knee flexion angle, center of mass, base of support, in a perfect world is able to aggressively push off of their lateral foot kind of like their big toe, tell people to kind of like find their big toe. That way they can control the direction that they're changing in. Find your big toe, push off of that big toe, and then just quickly and aggressively snap off of that versus getting there. And you can kind of see people who are really shitty at change of direction. They'll go and then they'll get here and then they'll like kind of like step away from it. Like they'll use their, they'll use this foot to step away versus using this foot to push away, right? So, um kind of in a nutshell that's kind of what i would look for in a perfect in a perfect change of direction maneuver cool i like it like it that's how i put it, put it into like a position to answer that and it's kind of hard to answer it in just a conversation yeah i know it's hard yeah it's hard to answer in a conversation but i try to do my best to kind of like explain it and show no it. i like it it's yeah. good it's good yeah so that's all for change change direction yeah so I know you did podcasts before. So what mm -hmm. made you start doing podcasts? Yeah. Uh, so I was a student in physical therapy school and um, I think it was my first year. And I don't, I think my, one of my friends had a podcast and he was doing a sports podcast or something. And I was like, you know, that might be like a really good idea for physical therapy students because back in the day, back in the day, I'm like, I was like three years ago. It's not that long, but when I was, interested in getting into physical therapy school, there wasn't a lot of information out there for physical therapy students. And there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, like podcasts from a PT student's perspective. And so um, I thought, you know, hey, this might be a good way to kind of like bring people on and have guests and, and talk about certain things. That way, people who are interested in physical therapy school can kind of tune in and be like, oh, that's what PT school is like. Oh, that's what classes are like. Okay, now I have a better idea of what it is and uh i talked to my one of my professors at school about it and she's like uh i don't think this is a good idea because you're gonna be swamped with classwork and you're gonna you're gonna have all this extra stuff to do i mean are you gonna be able to keep up with your classes i was like ah, i'll be fine i'm good so <laughs> so i ended up doing uh the podcast and it's funny because what it was supposed to be was a student podcast what it ended up being was a sports physical therapy podcast because I just kept inviting on sports physical therapists and people in the world and strength and conditioning coaches. But it was, I'm so grateful for it because I was able to build so many connections, connections that I still have to this day that have led me to where I am right now, you know, like with being an athletic training school and having the NFL opportunity and the internship and knowing some people who are already in that world, you know, like uh, I've had people like the physio tutors, a lot of people use the physio tutors 
um, when they were in PT school. Like I have connections with these guys. Um, um, being able to speak with the ESPN injury analyst who like works on fantasy football and does injury. She's a physical therapist that does um, fantasy football updates on injuries, which is crazy. Like there's not a, that's like one of one job. There's no other job like that out there. So um, just all these amazing connections I was able to build with, um, with people and people like a uh, shout out to Dano, Dano Norseed. He's a, he's a physical therapist and athletic trainer for the, uh, for the, for the Arizona Cardinals. Um, and he was like a big factor in, in, in my change of direction and career as well. And helped me a lot. Um, Luke Novosel, shout out to him as well. He's a physical therapist. Uh, I think he's director of rehab currently with the, with the Mets. Um, so there's a lot of people that I'm, 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 I'm really grateful for. So um, if I haven't said their name so far, I apologize, but um, so many people to thank for where I am at right now from that podcast. And yeah, I think it it was, that's what started it. And it just ended up turning into more of like a sports rehab thing and, and uh, sports physical therapist perspective or athletic training perspective. And for that, it's kind of led me to where I am. So um, as a physical therapist or athletic trainer, like professional wise, skill wise, do you think that can help you grow? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, there's there's so many op- there's so many job opportunities that open up for you, but not even the job opportunities. But like, let's say for example, like people don't often really know what the difference is between a physical therapist and athletic trainer. Um, a physical therapist is I kind of explain it as like the person that you see after the fact. So after you've had your injury, after you've had your surgery. Um, that's who you go see for your rehab. And um, they're kind of seen as like the rehab experts, but athletic trainers are just as great um, and can be just as great and sometimes even better than physical therapists um, at rehab as well. And they do um, tremendous work and they do rehab as well. And uh, But the biggest difference between these two professions, I believe, is um, the emergency care. And physical therapists, that's just not within their scope of practice. Not to say that they couldn't or ever wouldn't have that, um, but physical therapists are just not are not first responders, right? And so athletic trainers are um, technically or, 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 or not even technically, they are first responders. So when somebody's bone is sticking out on the side of the field, your physical therapist isn't going out there unless they're athletic training certified as well, because the athletic trainer is the one who's able to um, assess the situation and they're trained and able to um, send it off to the next level of care. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, I think my skills improved tremendously because now I've learned the emergency aspect of, of rehab. I'm, I truly feel like with the skills that I have, I'm able to not yet, cause I, I still needed some experience in athletic training, but I'll be able to watch the injury as it happens, assess the injury as it happens do what I need to do to save, potentially save the life or help save the life, not save, but help save the life of this individual. Um, And then send them off to the appropriate care, bring them back, and then I can help them get back to that field. So it's like from step A to step C. It's like all the way through. There's no gaps now. And then with me having my strength and conditioning certifications, not to say that I'm taking over for strength and conditioning, but having that knowledge base, I'm able to kind of help if you were to like, fill in like a like a like a like a foam into a tube right i'm able to fill in that gap between between the foam and the tube right so if that analogy makes sense it does in my head but but um 
just kind of help fill in the gaps. So I just feel like there's no missing, there's no stones left unturned, I guess to say. Cool. Um, mm-hmm. Nice, nice. So I did podcasts and the one question I get asked a lot is which one is your favorite? Ah, which one's my favorite? Um, My favorite one is uh Joe Cook. Oh, I think that one was my favorite one. Okay. Joe Cook, and I think um, it was a really popular one too. A lot of people like reached out to me for that one, but she is a she's the reason why I'm obsessed with tendons. Like she is a phenomenal, like unreal scientist in the world of um physical therapy. Might be a good person for you to reach out to for your podcast because she is amazing. So uh, as a student before I took my exam. She was doing a uh, a lesson on lower limb tendinopathy in Houston Methodist, and I traveled to Houston to go attend one of her conferences with some classmates. And man, I was blown away by her principles. Like she was so straightforward. She's Australian, so like Australians don't play around. Like they don't they don't fuck around. They're they're like it's it's this or fuck off. Like it's one or the other way. Like, so you know. And I really appreciated like her like direct approach, and I liked that she was um so confident in what she was teaching and you know she she wasn't a fan of needles she's not a fan of 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 um oh what is it um what is it uh the the plasma rich with prp injections she's not a fan of those she's not a fan of like scraping tendons and all these other things that you typically see in our in our world um and she's really big on loading principles and loading and rehab and why that's the utmost important for uh, utmost importance for um tendon tendon uh injuries and she did a really cool conference and i remember just sitting there like wow like i am like i i walked in there like ah oh, tendons whatever and then i walked out like i'm in love with tendons like this is amazing i want to learn more about this so um you know i left and uh i think i mean even even with the achilles tendon rehab injuries i think that's what kind of like led me to that post uh, on instagram that's kind of gained some traction but like i i'm just a big believer in loading mechanics and loading rehab and the simple stuff you know like i'm a big believer in the simple things and the foundation building so she's she's a big advocate of that and she in my podcast broke down achilles uh tendons into like three stages and she was able to like explain it so well and she explained how imaging doesn't always adequately present the whole case because you'll have a degenerative tendon on on an image. The person, an individual will be feeling fine and won't have any pain. So does pain actually correlate to the imaging? It was so many, so many more questions that were brought up. But um, that by far was my favorite podcast because I feel like I was able to learn so much that I've been able to apply to my own practice to this day. So I think that one is a good one for sure. Cool, cool. So uh, are you going to keep doing the podcast? Yeah, I don't know. I was, my wife talked to me about that. I don't know if I'm going to keep doing it, to be honest. I, uh, I've been, well, because I've just been so busy with like, um, you know, school, like I'm currently doing, like I currently work like three jobs and I go to school full time and I have a wife and I have family like help out and. It's just a lot of stuff and I'm getting ready to move to Denver. Um, so it's, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole process. 
yeah, it's a whole fraud. But but you know, hopefully, I mean, that's not to say I'll never do one again. I have like a list of people that I'd like to bring on the podcast, and and they've agreed to. So, um, you know, God willing, we'll see what happens. I'm just kind of like in that stage of just you know, I feel like I've done I've done what I needed from the podcast. I I was able to what I wanted from the podcast was ultimately to build connections, which sounds selfish, but it's 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 it was it was very helpful, right? Um, build connections and um improve the knowledge base in an area that not a lot of people were familiar with. And I feel like I was able to do that with the number of podcasts that I put out, um, which wasn't a lot, but again, I think I've, I, I think I did what I needed to in that world. And I'm just kind of like, you know, it just, it is what it is. So, but we'll see. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So, um, to be honest, for whatever it's worth, this is probably the best change of direction podcast I had ever. Oh, awesome, man. Thank you. <laughs> for real, for real. I got, I got, I got like uh, big time strength coaches. I got big time physical therapists, but this is probably the best I have. <laughs> I'm probably just really loud. That's why. Nah, you're good. I like it. I like it. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's, probably, awesome. that's probably from all those stuff you learned from the podcast. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, I mean, I appreciate it. Thank you. That means a lot to me. I, um, uh, I'm not the, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I'm not by any means an expert in any field whatsoever. I do have strong opinions though. Um, and I stand by my opinions and I just kind of like, you know, present them. It's like, this is just what I feel. It's not a hundred percent, but that's just what I feel is right. And, yeah, man. and I just kind of go from there. Yeah. Cause people cool. just try to make everything so black and white. There's a lot of gray area, you know? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So I know you're super busy and I appreciate it for your time, but since this, this is definitely the best change of direction podcast I ever did. I'm going to invite you on again. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Please do. I'm, I'll be happy to talk. I'll be happy to talk and give you information for sure. Thank you. I appreciate Thank that. Thank you. So, also, for those who are interested in what we are talking about today, no matter like Achilles tendon, change of direction, ACL, MCL tear, or just change of direction mechanics, uh, where can they reach out to you? Yeah, so you can find me on um, Instagram. Primarily, I'm, I'm most active on that at um, Dr. Mohamed Almu. Um, so that's D-R-M-O-H-A-M-E-D-A-L-M-U. Um, I'll give you the information. Maybe you can put it in the YouTube channel. Um, and then um, feel free to email me. Um, all of my podcasts, I was always amazed with my podcast guests because they would always give out their personal email. So to help and 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 give back to the community that I was given, I'm doing the same. So uh, my email, my personal email address is just my first and last name at yahoo.com. So just whoever has any questions, feel free to reach out to me. And I'm ha always happy to respond um, and and give my uh, give my two cents. So hey, love it. Yep.